This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Hello, uh, welcome to this Rand Congressional Briefing. I'm Wynne Burkle, Director of Rand's Office of Congressional Relations here in Washington. And it's my pleasure to introduce Bo Kilmer, Rosalie Pakula, and Jonathan Calkins, all of RAND's Drug Policy Research Center, um, who will be briefing today on what we know and what we don't know about marijuana legalization. With that, uh, let me turn it over to the three panelists. And Bo, you're going to start us off? Great. Thanks. Okay, well, thanks, Wynn. And uh, thank you all for being here today. Uh, just to kind of give you a roadmap, I'm going to just spend a few minutes making about four general points about marijuana legalization. Then I'm going to hand the mic over to John to give you some specifics about the 2012 proposals, as well as some of the uh, options that the federal government has if one of these states actually passes. Then at the end, Rosalie is, actually, is going to talk about uh, two other areas of research at RAND, which aren't directly related to legalization, but they're important for those debates, and those are drug prevention and medical marijuana. So with that, in terms of these... Uh, the few points I want to make, uh, they're largely based on the new book that John and I have out, along with Angela Hawkin and uh, uh, Mark Kleiman, uh, called Marijuana Legalization, What Everyone Needs to Know. A lot of what we'll be talking about is based on that, but also on two previous RAND reports that came out in 2010 that are specific to marijuana policy in California. And I think we have copies of those out uh, on the table in front if you're interested. But the first point I want to make about legalization is that definitions matter, and they matter a lot. When people talk about legalization, they're usually talking about removing the prohibition on production, distribution, and possession of marijuana. Sometimes they talk about having there be regulations and taxation, but not always. It's important that, because this is very different from the concept of decriminalization, where decriminalization usually refers to reducing the penalties just for possession. You know, for example, moving possession from a, mar uh, from a misdemeanor offense down to a, an infraction. And uh, these concepts uh, often get conflated in the media and in policy debates, and it leads to a lot of confusion. There's also a lot of confusion about what the marijuana policy actually is in the Netherlands. And let me be very clear. The, in the Netherlands, they did not legalize marijuana. Sure, if you're over 18, you can walk into one of the coffee shops and buy up to five grams because they have a formal policy of not enforcing small-scale transactions. So you can kind of think about it being legal in the front door. However, it's still illegal to grow, distribute, and sell to, the or sell to the coffee shops. So it's actually illegal in the back door. So they have not legalized production. Often in these debates, Portugal also, uh, usually comes up. In Portugal, they did decriminalize all drugs, but they did not legalize the production of marijuana. The second point I want, and this is important, because the second point I want to make is that uh, with legalization, you're going to see a large reduction in the production costs. There are several reasons for this, and a lot of it's based on risk. Right now, when someone buys marijuana or methamphetamine or cocaine, a lot of what they're doing is compensating the drug dealer and everyone else along that supply chain for the risk of arrest and risk of incarceration. That goes away with legalization. You'd also expect there to be economies of scale, you know, advances in technology. So if marijuana was actually farmed like a normal agricultural good, the prices would just, the cost would just plummet. Uh, the California director of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, Normal, testified a couple years ago and said that if marijuana was legalized and unregulated, the price, the cost could drop to a few dollars an ounce, pennies a joint. And this is actually consistent with some of the other work that we did looking at the California proposals. 
We would also expect a large price drop even if you had an alternative model where it was only legal to grow in grow houses. As part of RAND's 2010 Altered State Report, John Calkins in a a number of colleagues actually estimated what it would cost to build a grow house and in terms and what types of yields you would get. And the bottom line is that uh, after, if, if a state were to legalize and in-house uh, production was allowed, you would see uh, the, 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 cost, the production cost per pound could fall to somewhere around $400. Then once you throw in retailer markup, logistics, and distribution, the pre-tax price for an ounce could actually, this is for, you know, Sensimia high-quality indoor grow marijuana, could drop below $50. Now, right now in California and a lot of country, the, uh, the, uh, an ounce of kind of the same quality marijuana goes for about $250 to $350 an ounce. So that's a really large uh, price drop, a large drop focusing on the pre-tax prices. And finally, we also have insights about production costs from other countries with medical marijuana programs. So Dale Gehringer, the head of California Normal, just published an article talking about how in Israel, right now, when they out uh, for their medical marijuana uh, program, it's outdoor, but it's still medical grade and high quality, it costs them about 79 cents a gram to produce, or about $22. And we also have uh, $22 an ounce. And we also have information from the Netherlands. While I said that it's not legal to produce, there actually is one producer in the Netherlands that is actually made, uh, producing marijuana for their medical program. And I was just there about six months ago, and these are pictures of their veg and their uh, flowering rooms. And right now, they're only producing about 400 pounds a year. And this is pretty high quality, 19% THC, no pesticides, uh, consistent product. And But both, it's important to know that both of these rooms they have here are only about 600 square feet each. So they are hardly kind of along the, uh, the economies of scale curve. Um, but that said, they opened up their books to me, and if we look at what the marginal cost is for producing a gram of this high-quality cannabis, it's only about a euro. And so and this is in the Netherlands, and this is very small-scale production. So putting this all together, we know that the, pre that the production costs are going to fall. The pre-tax prices will be low. Of course. We can put taxes and we can put regulations on as a way of trying to increase the, uh, the retail price to try to offset this drop. However, if the taxes are too large, you really do have to worry about tax evasion. Right now in California, the taxes on a pack of cigarettes, which are close to about an ounce, uh, run about $2, federal plus state. And you have the State Board of Equalization has come out and said that 14% of all packs that are uh, consumed in, the, in California are actually smuggled in. They've evaded the taxes. Now, there's actually, there is debate about this 14%, but it's important to note that just on $2 an ounce, you do have evasion. Now, think about that uh, grow house model that I was just talking about, where if the previous price was $250 an ounce, but now the pre-tax price would be $50, you would need $200 in taxes and in fees in order to try to get that up just for an ounce. And that's just not going to happen. We talk about this in the book, though. There is one model where we think it could do a decent job of artificially inflating the price, and that's if the regime is actually designed to collect revenue and, and enforce laws against those that are, uh, are, are producing when they shouldn't be. But that would require a, uh, a tightly enforced, government-controlled state monopoly. And it's, it's unclear about whether or not that would actually be politically plausible in the United States. You know, for example, if a state were to do that, whether or not the federal government would allow that. You know, a lot of the other work we've been doing is also thinking about the design consideration. So if you're a state and you've already made, you've, you've decided that you want to legalize, you have a lot of choices. And one of the big choices is going to come down to uh, what the taxes are going to be. 
So a lot of the discussion is about taxes per gram, but it's important to note there are other options there. You can have an ad valorem tax. You could tax by the share of THC, which is the intoxicating ingredient. You could also tax by different ratios of different cannabinoids, you know, you know, percent, you know perhaps the uh, share of THC to CBD. There are a lot of options there. And it's, it's, so it's important to realize that you don't just have to tax by weight if you're thinking seriously about these issues. The final point I want to make is that legalization not only reduces costs to the criminal justice system, it also reduces costs imposed by the criminal justice system. When someone gets arrested or convicted for marijuana possession, this, has, this can have a negative impact, impact on them as well as their intimates. And we know that there are these collateral consequences where convictions can make it harder to obtain federal funding for student loans. It can make it harder to obtain uh, or to get into public housing. Well, but there is actually no evidence that any of those collateral consequences make a difference. So it's important to note that this is something that should be part of the debate. But honestly, it is hard to quantify. It's, it's hard to come up with numbers for that to then just put it in a cost benefit analysis, but this should be part of the discussion. On the other side, with respect to what the costs of marijuana prohibition are to the criminal justice system, the numbers are all over the place. When we started looking at this with respect to uh, in California, there was one estimate that put it put out by normal that said it was about $200 million a year. There was another estimate that said the California criminal justice system spends $2 billion a year enforcing the laws. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a bit, there's a big difference there. And so if you kind of take information about well, arrest, incarceration, uh, adjudication, and you put some slap on some unit costs, you can get a pretty good idea about what the ballpark figure is. And our best estimate was that for California, they probably spend between, but this was actually before the Leno Bill in 2011, that spending was between $250 and $350 million per year. Uh, final point I want to make, though, is while legalization would reduce some of the criminal justice costs, it's not going to eliminate them. Many of the marijuana legalization propositions would still keep it illegal for those who are under 21. However, you know, John and I, for a different paper, we looked at, we looked at the arrests broken down by age in California, and more than 40% of all marijuana arrests in California were for those who were still under 21. Now, sure, some of those were for sales, and that would go away with legalization, but a lot of them were for possession, too. So with that, those are kind of four general points, and now I want to hand it over to John to talk more specifically about the 2012 proposals. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. So the first point about 2012 is this is legalization at the state level is a real possibility this year. Ten states considered 17 different proposals. Three, Oregon, Washington, and Colorado, will vote on legalization this fall. Legalization has been a topic for 50 years, but what has changed is the probability of passage. General population surveys for the nation as a whole have support at 50% this past year. A poll two months ago had 56% yes and only 36% no. Polls on specific propositions will tend to be a little less favorable because someone might not like aspects of a particular proposal. The polls on the particular propositions are running just a little above 50% in Colorado and Washington and a bit below in Oregon. So none is guaranteed to pass, but it's a real possibility that one could. And if even one of these three passes, it will radically change marijuana markets throughout the entire United States. The second point I want to make is that these proposals are different. It's very common in this topic to think of marijuana legalization as a binary choice. 
yes, no, do I favor it or not? But there's a lot of variation between different legalization proposals. For example, the 17 proposals split roughly equally across these three bins, repeal only, repeal and delegate, repeal and regulate. Repeal only is just what it says. All it does is repeal all laws against marijuana-related activity, or maybe everything except driving under the influence. And these can be short. Michigan's was just 88 words long. And you might say, well, that doesn't change anything because the Federal Controlled Substances Act would still be out there. And that's true. So any marijuana activity, even a single medical patient with one joint, could still be arrested. But the key thing to realize is that 97% of all marijuana arrests are made by state and local enforcement. So state legalization removes the great bulk of the arrests. And there is precedent for this. In 1923, New York State repealed its alcohol prohibition a full decade before the nation repealed the Volstead Act. But none of the three are in that bin. Oregon's is in the repeal and delegate, which repeals all the prohibition laws, and it sketches a framework for a regulatory regime, but delegates the fleshing out of that to some state agency. In that case, it would be a newly constituted Oregon Cannabis Commission. Uh, Washington, Colorado, are in the repeal and regulate. Now, there's still going to be an agency, Colorado Department of Revenue, Washington Liquor Control Board, but the proposition itself spells out in great detail what would happen. So Oregon's proposition, one page, Washington 502, 62 pages. So a big difference in the level of detail. Now, to give you just a little bit of a sense of what are in these propositions, Colorado and Washington are somewhat alike, so I'll talk about them together. Um, they are both free enterprise approaches. The government would be only licensing and regulating. It would be licensed private companies that would do all the cultivation, processing, and sale. Both have ad valorem taxes as a percentage of value. So after prices plummet, effectively these taxes are fairly modest. So maybe there wouldn't be a huge problem with evasion. Colorado caps the tax at no more than 15% and only on non-medical. And that's a key distinction because one quarter of Colorado's past month users have a medical recommendation. Washington's is more complicated. There's three different 25% levies at, at different market levels. Uh, both would earmark some of the tax revenue for popular causes, perhaps as a way of making it politically awkward for the federal government to try to seize those tax revenues as the proceeds of illegal transactions. Both you might describe as good faith efforts to create a responsible regulatory regime. Washington in particular has a lot of provisions to try to make the retail distribution points relatively unobtrusive. Restrictions on advertising, signage, location, and so on. Now, the Oregon Cannabis Tax Act is completely different. This Oregon Cannabis Commission would participate directly in the trade. There would still be private contractors for production, but the sales would be through state stores, which, as Bo said, if it were at the national level, would have some important advantages. And there are other provisions that try to restrain the consequences. For instance, sanctions against selling to minors or public, intoxica public consumption. But there are also parts of the, of the Oregon proposition, which are aggressively pro-industry, and most conspicuously, it builds in regulatory capture. 
This OCC, which would be responsible for restraining diversion from licensed cultivation into outright black markets, would by design be captured by the producers. Five of the seven commissioners would be picked by the producers. There's also no local opt-out. A, a, a town couldn't say, fine for the rest of the state, but we don't want to do it. And there are some really striking provisions about what the attorney general would have to do, including being obligated to aggressively defend anyone who is prosecuted for any action that would be licensed under the act, including federal prosecution. And that brings me to, to the next point, which is that if we try to predict for you what the consequences would be, we'll keep saying it's really hard to pin down, and that's in part because we don't know what the federal government would do in response. So very simplistic description. There are at least three kinds of things the federal government could do in response. One is judges could rule that provisions are positively conflicting with the Federal Controlled Substances Act and so are preempted and are essentially void. Now, it's a lot easier to predict that there will be court battles about this than to predict how it will turn out, but one guess would be that a state store that's directly selling would positively conflict with federal law, but Washington and Colorado are very different. Under those, the government would only be licensing and regulating, which are activities that they already do with respect to medical marijuana, so perhaps those would stand. Federal government can also hire a bunch more DEA agents and try to fill in for some of the missing state and local enforcement. I said earlier, 97% of the arrests are state and local, and that's true. It's really the sales arrests, though, that matter for industry structure, and for that, it's 90% that are state and local. And this chart is to try to give you a feel for that. The bar on the far left is the total number of DEA marijuana sales arrests in the nation. The other bars are state-specific. Blue part is DEA arrest, yellow, state and local. Montana was one of the states that was considering. They're not going to vote on it in November. But had Montana passed, the DEA could easily fill in for what Montana police were doing. Couldn't make up for California. The three states that are voting are somewhat in between. The last sort of federal response would be for U.S. attorneys to write letters to landlords or other business affiliates like banks who are accepting deposits. And the letter would say, in effect, your tenant is violating federal law. You better do something about that or we'll seize your building. And those letters have a real effect. They've been used to close down a lot of medical marijuana dispensaries at fairly low cost to the federal government. It's very expensive to hire a lot more DEA agents. Letters are relatively cheaper. Now, I want to use this letters idea to illustrate another point I'd like you to take away from this, which is that the Devil can be in the details and the nuances of the propositions. I think it's possible that those letter strategy would work very well at shutting down the Washington proposition, but not Colorado. Because in Washington, each licensee would be required to operate from one fixed and specified physical location that is reported to the state. That's an easy target for letters. In Colorado, the facilities are just entities with no restriction to operate in a particular place. You could grow in a bunch of places surreptitiously, sell out of the back of your car. I also want to use the letter story to make another point, which is that the federal government will face some very difficult choices if any of these pass. Now, let's suppose for the minute the DA is not going to get 10,000 new agents and there's not going to be a complete replacement of the state and local enforcement, so production costs are going to go down, consumption will go up. 
If you allow a regulatory scheme like Washington with its taxes and with its other restraints, that could take the edge off of the increase in use. On the other hand, it's exactly that regulatory structure that's relatively easy for the federal government to attack with letters. So that's a tough choice then. On the one hand, the thing that you can attack is the one thing that can take the edge off of the increase. But it might be very hard for the federal government to do nothing because of political pressures. And if the federal government does nothing, then it's entirely possible that other states will follow the lead in a domino story. And there's a lot of reasons why there could be a domino effect. I'm going to give you just one because it'll give me an excuse to talk about potential impact on prices in other parts of the country, which is the last point I want to make. And, and for this part, I want you to, for a moment, imagine that you are a wholesale marijuana dealer supplying a state like New York. Right now, you're sourcing directly or indirectly from Mexico or maybe illegal production in California. You'd rather buy in Colorado if Colorado legalized. The price would be much lower, lower enforcement risk. Would anyone there sell to you? Well, the Colorado proposition makes it very easy to get a cultivator's license, and there really isn't much in the proposition to prevent diversion. So it's entirely plausible that there would be some people who would get the cultivator's license, produce some to sell to Colorado residents, but also be happy to sell larger quantities to dealers from out of state. And if you run through the math of the cost, both the production and the distribution cost, that system could be providing marijuana back in New York for maybe a quarter of its current price, creating substantial downward pressure over time so that after production ramped up, who knows, maybe five years, you could see a very big decline in price. And the Colorado producers would have a big incentive for doing that because the whole U.S. market is 50 times the size of the market inside Colorado. And the Colorado government would, in some sense, have an incentive to look the other way because they would benefit economically from this export industry, if you will. So if you run through that sort of thinking for all the states, you create a map that looks like this for the percentage decline in prices you could see around the country. And the short answer is declines of 75% or more everywhere throughout the country, potentially leading to increases in use and questions of whether or not that could be dealt with with prevention, a topic I'll leave to Rosalie. Thank you, John. So. You've heard both John and Bo mention that with these proposals, even just a simple state proposal, legalization can lead to a substantial decline in price. And economic literature published as well as theory suggests that with a decline in price comes an increase in consumption. No one, not anyone who's written a single legalization proposal, wants youth to increase consumption. Every proposal has prohibited youth for individuals under the age of 21. So could, can we prevent our way out of this, and can we stop youth from using if price is declining substantially, as indicated by Bo and John? It's important to understand there is a well-established literature in the US, Australia, the Netherlands, France, that youth consumption of marijuana is responsive to price. A research uh, literature review that we conducted as part of the altered state evaluation showed that in summarizing literature, the average effect of a 10% decrease in price would be an increase in initiation of individuals 18 and under between three and 5%. A larger price decrease would lead to a larger initiation. So, can't we prevent our way out of this? We've got drug prevention. Why don't we just 
do prevention and that would offset the effects of the price decrease. And that's, in essence, part of the arguments for this. The problem is we have prevention now. And in prevention today, we have half of the people who use marijuana, who report ever using marijuana, initiating before the age of 18. One in four high school seniors have used marijuana in the past year, one in four. Why is this a problem beyond just youth starting using? Lots of epidemiological research has shown, and here I've shown a graph from some RAM work, that the earlier a person initiates, the more likely they become a heavy independent user. Over 65% of kids who initiate marijuana at the age of 12 become heavier dependent users even before the age of 21, according to our model, where it's cut to less than a third if the individual waits and doesn't initiate use until age 18. So we need prevention to help delay initiation. But as I said, it's not seeming to work, but we all know prevention is a hodgepodge in our school systems today and in our communities. We don't have the best model programs out there being implemented. So what if we just could implement the best programming we have available? Well, because we don't have data on that, RAND constructed a microsimulation model to estimate what would be the effect of being able to implement, according to SAMHSA, our model programs where we're seeing significant declines in one-year initiation rates of 10.9% on average. These are from the best model programs. What I'm showing you here is the current situation of use B and our hodgepodge prevention that's kind of embedded in here. If we were able to implement model prevention programs in middle schools in the U.S., the effects on use rates among 18, 19, and 20-year-olds doesn't get affected much nor does heavy use, and these are our best programs. Does that mean that we shouldn't do prevention? Absolutely not. Drug prevention is cost-effective. It does have an effect, and it's very cheap to implement. In earlier work led by John at Iran, we showed that the average cost per student of implementing the best model program is about $150 per student. Most of those costs coming from the time we take away from teachers in school and teaching other important topics like math and science. Our most conservative estimate of the benefits of prevention were twice the cost. So model drug programming can be very beneficial. The problem is the effect size is fairly small and communities have a really tough time implementing our model programs. We have science showing the best way to do it and when we take it to the communities, it's not being implemented with high fidelity and to the level that it needs to be to get the measly 10% decline in initiation in one year. There's lots of reasons for this. Researchers at RAND and others have looked at this topic and the problems have to do with the fact that we don't have a single agency providing prevention to all, of the to all the programs across the country. We have different agencies that have different pet projects, different pet programs targeting maybe, in this case, drug driving, or in this case, no use, abstinence, or in this case, just not escalating use. And we don't have a clear goal a clear standard, and we aren't holding programs accountable to achieving those goals. So if we're going to bank on prevention, we need to give our communities the tools to be able to do it better. 
and get the effects. And we need to figure out how to get those effects to sustain. Prevention scientists are working on this. This is not an impossible problem. But if you look at the problem of uh, prevention today, that's the status quo. So if we're not going to immediately be able to prevent our way out of this, we've got valid initiatives right now considering legalization. We have lots of evidence the price will fall substantially and significant evidence that even our best prevention programs are not going to delay initiation. What can we expect to happen to consumption? Some people have tried to answer this question by looking at the medical marijuana laws to see what have that done to consumption in the states that have them. For those of you who might not be familiar, 17 states in the District of Columbia today, as of January 1st, 2012, I say today, beginning of this year, had medical marijuana laws on the books, the orange states. What's important to consider is that if we look at the average annual prevalence of marijuana across the United States, as is shown in this graph, the orange and red states are states that have higher levels of annual marijuana prevalence than the national average. The ones that are white and light, light yellow are actually below national average. What you'll notice is the orange and red states here, mostly in the west and then in the northeast, closely mapped to the states that have medical marijuana laws. So the fundamental scientific question is, is it the laws that are causing this? Or did the states that have higher levels of, of use, are they just more able to pass the medical marijuana laws? That's the scientific question that we would really like an answer to. And if you are an advocate for with a position particular position on the limited scientific research that's been published, you can find a study that gives you the answer you want. We have published literature that suggests that they're positively associated with use and literature that says they have no association with use. And it's not purely a function of good and bad science. There's lots of hypothesized reasons for why the literature is mixed. One that we are investigating carefully is something that John has already hit on before with the legislation bills. These are not simple zero-one dichotomous indicators. These medical marijuana laws are not all the same. They're not homogeneous, and they, and they certainly have not been static. When I say they're not homogeneous, these laws differ in a number of important aspects that may or may not be associated to use recreationally, whether it's by youth or by others. Whether they were passed by voter referendum, whether they were passed by a state legislature, whether or not they require patients and caregivers to register or they just suggest that they do, those are elements that may or may not matter. Things that are likely to matter, at least in theory, are how many medical conditions can you use marijuana for. If you can use marijuana only for a number of you know, limited things, it's not as likely that people can go in and pretend those limited things unless they are really good at faking it. Um, if you have on your law books that you could use it for general pain, that's really hard for doctors to identify in normal clinical settings, let alone um, for this purpose. So it's easier for recreational users to get in under the radar. Similarly, home cultivation might provide it for people at home, for the patient, but also makes it available to anybody else who's in the, in the home. Medical dispensaries provide a practice for anybody who gets a medical card but if, again, and people can get a medical card by having general pain, that's not as narrow as it would otherwise be if it's for specific conditions. We are just now beginning to explore what dimensions of these laws are associated with use. But the problem is 
the dimensions are changing. These are not static laws. What this slide shows is just six states that have enacted medical marijuana laws, and the number of updates that they've done that have changed in the important dimensions that I just mentioned. California is often used as the example state. In 1996, the first law that was passed provided um, allowances for a variety of medical conditions, including general pain. The law did not explicitly allow dispensaries. It was not until the 2003 law that medical dispensaries had legal protection under state law. So, perhaps not too surprising, early evaluations of the law in 1996 didn't show any effect of the medical marijuana 1996 law on measures of use. However, since the 2003 law, there have been data suggesting that recreational use has been going up. 50% increase in daily use, a small increase, 20% increase in annual prevalence rates. This hasn't been carefully evaluated. It needs to be. This is just suggestive. But the point is, as these laws change, the effects of the laws might change too. We need to be careful when we draw on the literature and the science to evaluate the effects that we know what we're looking at. And scientists are just beginning to answer that. So unfortunately, I don't think that the current state of the science is such that we can use that to answer the question. Right now, you get to pick your answer. So with that, we thought we would wrap up. We've hit some of the main points we thought would be useful. We're opening it up to questions. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.